Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with my interview with Kathleen Stock, I want to tell you about an exciting development at Spiked. We have launched Spiked Supporters, our online hub for regular donors complete with exclusive perks. From now on, those who give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year will be able to comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to our events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse in your very own Spike Supporters account. To kick things off, we also have an extra special offer. Supporters can claim a free ticket while stocks last to our upcoming Zoom event on the 15th of June, where I will be in conversation with the great Rod Little. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We are really grateful for that. Regular donors who already give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are already eligible to join Spike supporters. You should have received an email from us, but if you haven't, get in contact by emailing supporters at spiked-online.com and we'll get you set up with an account. And if you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time to do it. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and set up your Spiked Supporters account. Thank you all from everyone at Spiked. And now, on with the show. I just cannot understand what the hell people thought they were doing, putting sex offenders into women's prisons because they say they feel like women. And at this point, I start to sound angry. But obviously, some people, people are under a kind of spell, I think. <laughs> and they just think that something miraculous has happened and all of the normal safeguarding processes and our understanding of human nature goes out the window. So this is about male patterns of violence. And it's just a fact that males are overwhelming the perpetrator of sexual violence and females are overwhelmingly the victims. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Kathleen Stock. Kathleen is a professor of philosophy at Sussex University. She has written widely on fiction, aesthetics, sex, gender and more. She has contributed to a wide array of academic journals and books and has given talks and lectures around the UK. In recent years, she has become one of the most prominent critics of the idea of sex self-identification. She has made a very strong case for defending women's sex-based rights against the encroachments of the more extreme wing of trans activism. She is the author of the newly published book, Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. So Kathleen, I want to kick off by, of course, talking about your brilliant new book, Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism, which is a really, really excellent, clear 
introduction to what is at stake in this discussion and also, of course, to your own views on where things have gone wrong and where things need to go next. And in the introduction, you touch upon something that I've certainly been thinking about, and I'm sure lots of other people have too, which is just how dramatic the shift has been over the past 10 years or so. So if we cast our minds back around 10 years ago, if you heard the word trans or transgenderism, you would typically have thought of uh, a transsexual, a man who had had surgery or taken hormones in order to adopt the persona of a woman. They were a very small minority. They were often on the front pages of newspapers because they were seen as exotic and strange. And no doubt there was an element of prejudice aimed at those people from, you know, people who saw them as freaks or, or who used other pejorative terms to describe them. But it was that's how it was genuinely understood. And if you fast forward a very short period of time, and you capture this very well in the beginning of your book, it's now completely different. Trans means something very, very different. You often don't need surgery at all. There are growing numbers of young women and even girls who are transitioning to the supposed male sex. And there's this new idea of gender identity, which I really want to dig down into with you as well. So a huge amount has changed. I wonder if you could, just to kick things off, if you could Tell us when it was for you that you noticed something was going wrong in this period. Was there a particular thing or a series of events that made you think, okay, things are going too far? Yes. A big uh, red flag for me was when Stonewall launched its quite popular campaign, I think quite effective campaign, with these t shirts and banners that said, um, trans women are women, get over it, and trans men are men, and get, get over it. And I thought, hang on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, my understanding up until that point had been that it was a good thing to do therapeutically in interpersonal situations with someone with gender dysphoria who was expressing themselves as a trans person. It was a good thing to do to observe their preferred pronouns and to um, talk as if they were the sex that they clearly wished to be. But I took that to be something that happened at the interpersonal level. I didn't think it was something that we were being told we must do. I thought it was a choice. I thought it was a polite choice or a, a kind choice. And I also could immediately see that if it was going to start being literally taken as literally true that trans women were women and trans men were men, then that was going to have all sorts of ramifications for the category mm -hmm. of women in particular, but also the category of men, because that really is changing the, the whole basis for membership of the category. And I was wrong. So very quickly, that demand, or, or at least that statement, trans women are literally women, just get over it, was accompanied by all sorts of demands from Stonewall and other trans activist lobbying groups on behalf of trans people. And it was in terms of this new thing, gender identity, which was inside you. So it was no longer anything to do with, necessarily to do with how you expressed yourself. That's a good segue into what I want to dig down into a little bit more, which is the whole concept of gender identity. Because I think when we think about how much has changed over the past decade or so in relation to this discussion, this phrase gender identity is the one that strikes me as quite new. Although in your book, you provide a very useful potted history of gender identity, which I want to ask you some questions about. But I wonder if you could just describe for our listeners how you understand 
what gender identity means, because it's become such a dominant phrase. We hear it so often. There are efforts to make it a legally protected category uh, beyond gender reassignment, which is when people have made a physical, hormonal or surgical effort to inhabit a different persona. Gender identity is something very different. It's a kind of inner psychological state. It's a feeling. It's a sensation that apparently we all have. Could you just describe for listeners what gender identity means in the eyes of trans campaigners and why you would have an issue with it? So the way it's most frequently talked about by modern trans activists, bearing in mind I, throughout this conversation, I always make a distinction between what trans activists demand and what actual trans yeah. people want, because I don't think those two things are necessarily the same. But modern trans activism talks about gender identity as if it's a fundamental part of the self. Um, they'll say it's your authentic self, your real self, your true you, who you really are. Sometimes it's accompanied by this idea that your body is um, wrong or, you know, your outsides don't match your insides. Or This is highly metaphorical, but it's taken kind of literally. And uh, it, often it's accompanied by the, by the idea that it's innate. So, in fact, that's built into Stonewall's definition on their website. It's your innate sense of your gender. I can't remember exactly how they phrase it, but they definitely mention innate. So it's sort of like something inside you waiting to burst out that we supposedly all have. And once you're, I would say, misaligned gender identity, once you become aware of it, it would be morally wrong for anyone to, to tell you who what your gender identity is or to try and suppress it on your behalf or to, you know, and it should be marked on your passport and it should be you know, you should have the right to self-identify into the birth certificate you want and so on. That's how it's seen by trans activists. I, I think there is such a thing as gender identity. I don't think we all have one, but I think that some people have a gender identity understood in a certain way. It's a kind of strong psychological identification with an ideal of the opposite sex or maybe with androgyny if, you're, if you've got a non-binary gender identity. And it can be meaningful for you and valuable or um, distressing. I mean, all of these things, but it is psychological. It can last your whole life or it can be temporary. But it doesn't make any sense to me to say this fundamental part of the self that we all have. And, and it's certainly not innate, I would say. There's no evidence to think that there's something innate there. And, and when I look in the book at certain studies which claim this, that's not, it turns out what they show. And if I could just ask you about the, the growth of it and what you think is motoring that, because Obviously, one of the most striking things about the time we live in is that gender identity issues and trans issues and trans activists uh, like you, I always make a distinction between the kind of hardcore trans activists who are very noisy and very influential and ordinary trans people who often just want to get on with their lives as best they can. Mm -hmm. But in relation to um, the growing popularity of the term gender identity. So one example would be the growing numbers of people who claim to have a gender identity that misaligns with their biological sex, or is, as it's now referred to, the sex they were assigned at birth, as if it was kind of picked for them by a medical doctor rather, rather than being an observable biological reality. The numbers of those people have grown enormously. So you describe in the book how it's gone from being a few thousand, you know, a decade or so ago to being tens of thousands now, particularly growing among younger people and younger women and even children, one child as young as three. I think that's the youngest age that the gender identity clinics in the UK ha have seen. What 
do you think is motoring that? Is is it a fad? Is it is there an element of hysteria? I don't mean that pejoratively, but in the sense that the way in which these fashions can spread through society. Mm-hmm. What is it, do you think, that is has caused this shift so that more and more people assume that they have a misaligned gender identity and biological sex? Well, I think it's a complex answer, no doubt. I would I would also say straight away that the three-year-old example, I just don't believe that three-year-olds mm. have a concept of gender identity. I think that's nothing but the projection of the adults around them mm. based on non-sex conforming behaviour, no doubt. But, well, one thing is that the idea is so vague and ill-formed and kind of changed. The, the idea of gender generally, as I sort of go through in the book, it's, there's about four different meanings. So basically many people don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> and it, mm. once you, if you don't know what it is, really, then it's easy to think you have one because, mm. you know, what are the tests exactly that you would run? There's lots of evidence that in the adolescent population, there's increasing mental health problems and distress. And, you know, there's been a rise in self-harm in girls in particular and suicide attempts which you can sort of track to the rise of the smartphone and the rise of Instagram and stuff like that. So I think that kids and adults grab onto the tools the culture offers them to express their distress. And, you know, 10 years ago in my classes, there was a lot of kids with scars all over their arms. There was a trend for self-harming. And now there's a trend for breast binding Mm. and microdosing tea or whatever it is they're doing. So I don't stand in judgment over any of that, but part of the problem with trans activism is it sort of shoves all these things together and says it's all the same phenomenon. But obviously there's something very different between a 47-year-old male <laughs> who's married with kids deciding he wants to wear dresses and then says, now I'm a woman, and a 15-year-old mm. you know, girl with a history of anorexia mm. or whatever, you know, and mental health, or maybe autism, or a lesbian who is interpreting herself as a heterosexual boy, you know, so there's just a lot of different phenomena here being pushed together and we can't analyse them properly because we're told we're just not allowed to question any of it. Absolutely. And I want to talk about that importance of debate and the fact that you're happy to be a heretic. I want to ask you about that as well shortly. But just sticking with the gender question and the gender identity question in particular, I want to ask you a few questions on this because I thought your history of it was really interesting. And I think what we can see in the current moment is that gender identity now has primacy over sexual reality. And that is pretty clear in the efforts that are made to shift the language away from sex towards gender, the way in which we are told that it's not appropriate to have protections for sex in equality acts, but it is appropriate to have protections for gender identity. Uh, The language that is used by health services, politicians, various other institutions, um, there is now a sacralizing of gender identity and a downplaying of biological sex and the reality of sex. So you have a chapter called What is Gender? You have a chapter called What is Sex? And I never thought we would need a chapter in a book (laughs) called What is Sex? But it was very fascinating to read it. Could you just describe for us how you understand the difference between sex and gender and why you think that's an important difference to talk about? Well, Sex is the difference between males and females, or at least sex is a state that you, uh, one of two states uh, in in sexually dimorphic Mm. species like the human one. Um, So it's a material 
state. I think it's real. I don't think it's psychological. In the book, I I give three different accounts of sex and I don't choose between them because I sort of want to be maximally inclusive. Like if you mm. don't like that one, have this one. And if you don't like that <laughs> one, have this one. But either way, <laughs> it's mm. not in your head and it's not mm. something you can identify into. And it's something that has social impact. And that's the bit I'm particularly interested in. I mean, obviously it has medical impact. Um, you don't want to be given the wrong drugs. Mm. You know, it has all sorts of medical consequences, but um, it also has consequences in sport. It has consequences yeah. in how we try and safeguard women from sexual assault. And it has consequences of sexual orientation and how we talk about that because it's one sex att- attracted to another sex. And that's how yeah. we uh, keep going as a human race. And then there are same sex attracted people like me, <laughs> but I am attracted to the same sex as me and not someone who has a female gender identity. That would not be I mean, if they were male, that would not be my thing. How do you think it's become tolerated so swiftly, in fact, and by so many institutions, education, Mm. even the prison system, vast swathes of the political class? And as you point out in your book, disappointingly, many feminist groups or feminist campaigners, why do you think it's become so swiftly accepted that gender identity should be valued more highly than questions of sex? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. I mean, I, I know that I know one big explanation is that it's just, a, it's kind of a boring explanation, but it's my hobby horse. It's that Stonewall has this massive diversity champion scheme, which huge numbers of national institutions, universities, police forces, prison services, politicians, you know, political parties and so on are all signed up to. And I now know because lots of people be doing freedom of information requests, exactly what that means in terms of propaganda being chucked at you do this, you know, observe this trans day of visibility, make sure your CEO says this, and it's all about gender identity. So I think people have taken that uncritically because um, Stonewall has a stellar record in its past standing up for gay people. I also think a lot of people just don't understand what this all is at all. Yeah, yeah. And they think it's something to do with being gay and it's something to do with being sticking up for vulnerable people and so it's commendable. And then I think, well, Stonewall's telling us to do this, so we'll do it. That's, mm. I think it's maybe as banal as that. Mm. You know, there's extra stuff about why feminists have gone along with it. <laughs> I just, mm. you know, I still struggle to comprehend. <laughs> Hi, it's Fraser Myers here. I produce this podcast along with all of Spike's other podcasts. We talk a lot about the growing power of big tech on Spiked and on the Brendan O'Neill show and the dangers that it can present to our freedoms. For instance, did you know that the same company that controls half of all online retail will sometimes passively eavesdrop on your private conversations at home? The company that controls 90% of internet searches can track everything you do when you're on your smartphone. Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. But you don't just have to put up with it. You can put a layer of protection between your online activity and these tech juggernauts. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, this software can hide your IP address, something that big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and to sell to advertisers. 
ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing down your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. What I like most about ExpressVPN is just how easy it is to use. You just download an app on your phone or your computer, you tap one button and you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to big tech, who's mining your activity and selling your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash Brendan. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Brendan. And you can get an extra three months for free. Go to expressvpn.com slash Brendan right now to learn more. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about feminism because over the past two or three years, I've often heard usually right-wingers who will be quite sceptical of the trans movement and will raise questions about extreme trans views in particular, who will often say something like, well, it's all the feminists' fault anyway because they're the ones who raise the whole point of gender. They're the ones who said that sexual differences aren't really important. And I always take those arguments with a pinch of salt. It's it's kind of too much of an easy explanation. However, I was really happy that in your book, in a far more intellectual, philosophical fashion, you do dig down into the possibility that some of the shifts and developments that took place in feminism over the past few decades may have unwittingly contributed to the current situation. And I think one point that really connected with me in particular was that because feminists were very keen to take us away from ideas of biological determinism and and particularly the sexist idea that had existed for a very long time, which is that women, by virtue of their biology, are inferior to men and lack the capacity to engage in public life and work life, etc. Because it was important for feminists to shift the terrain away from biological determinism, they grasped rather too happily to the idea of gender and to the idea of uh, of maleness and femaleness as social constructions. So could you just give our listeners a, a little bit of a, an overview of how you think feminism may have accidentally created yeah. the gender confusions that we currently have? Absolutely. So gender is a word, as I tried to explain, gets used in different senses all the time, including within feminism. So there is a a use of gender that I'm perfectly happy with, which is the social meanings around being male or female, like masculinity, femininity, without pronouncing at all on whether that's inbuilt or not, whether it's uh, nature or nurture. I mean, I say nothing about that in the book except to try and steer clear of it. I don't think it makes any difference to the the substantive matters here. But what um, some radical feminists did in the 70s and 80s was use gender in a different sense to mean something like the claim that womanhood and manhood, like being a woman, being a man, is purely social. It's not a biological state. It doesn't actually track being a woman and being female and not coextensive. And they did that not because they were trying to be trans-inclusive. Mm-hmm. That just wasn't on the agenda back then. It was this, I think, futile attempt to avoid this charge that women are born with certain psychological traits that make them suited to domesticity and ill-suited to education, etc. Which you know people do make like women are 
thicker than men. They can't, they can't drive or mm. whatever the sexist claim is. So instead of just saying, no, that's not true, let's find some empirical science that shows that's not true, these <laughs> feminists make the genius move of saying, right, we'll just redefine women so it's not something biological, then they can't get us. Mm. And as I say in the book, I think this is a bit like saying, you know, trying to escape the fact that an asteroid is about to hit the Earth by redefining the Earth as something that cannot be hit by an asteroid. You know, it's just really not going to work. And of course, it's not going to stop <laughs> the sexists telling women they can't drive and should stay in the kitchen anyway. I mean, as if they were going to mm. be fooled by a ridiculous move like that. So it's not the point, really. We need a concept to refer to half of the human race that produces <laughs> large gametes. Mm. And it can't just be female because there's female cows and dogs and ducks. So we need a human one. And, and that concept's woman. <laughs> and and it works all right. And we're not going to change, you know, changing it to something social is just barking mad. You've just changed the subject, really. Yes, the word woman, uh, that's an important one, which I want to touch on shortly. But in relation to the feminism discussion, I want to kind of, I mean, this is ridiculous in some ways, but I want to kind of skate us through from Simone de Beauvoir through to Judith Butler right now. Th that's a stupid thing to do in some ways. Well, because I did it, so. <laughs> you, you, yeah. But de Beauvoir is a very serious thinker who contributed an enormous amount to people's understanding of the world and freedom, whereas Judith Butler is less so, shall we say. But you have this line from de Beauvoir, which is probably one of her, of her most famous lines, which is, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. This is often... I've heard this held up by mm. trans activists or, or trans inclusive feminists and others as proof that feminism has always had an understanding that womanhood is an inclusive category rather than a, a binary or, or biological one. And you mm. offer the view that that's not what de Beauvoir meant. So could you just say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you can tell that because in the very next sentence from the book, not that I have it beside me, she talks about females. So what she means, I think, is that, I mean, I actually don't even agree with her about this, but this, yeah. <laughs> whatever, you know, <laughs> that's the other thing, just because feminists think it in the past doesn't mean we can't argue mm. with it now. But she thinks that being female means that you're on a path to be socially inculcated into femininity. I mean, I think she's right about that. But she, she calls that sort of state of being initiated into femininity being a woman. And then she talks about how in Russia they say things like, ah, you know, you're a real woman. So she, she took, she kind of makes a linguistic move from the fact people say there are real women and then women who are not real women that somehow womanhood is a kind of honorific. And I, I disagree with that, that bit. I definitely agree with her that there's something called femininity that, that women get sort of inculcated into. And there's something called masculinity that men get inculcated into too. But we're just arguing about whether that's womanhood and manhood. Now, that would show if she was right that, you know, womanhood was something social, but it wouldn't show that men or males could do it because it's something she mm. thinks happens to females. Yeah. It might be that she opened the door there. But, you know, like I say, just because Simone de Beauvoir said it doesn't make it true. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then if we fast forward, I mean, we're leaping over so much here. And if you want to add anything, please feel sure. free. But if we go forward to Judith Butler, who is the kind of, her, her texts are very often the founding texts of 
queer studies and trans studies and gender studies and so on. And you described very well how following the publication of some of Judith Butler's work, suddenly all the women's studies departments become gender studies departments. So there is a shift that takes mm-hmm. place quite a long time ago, mm-hmm. certainly before the kind of trans mania of of the very recent mm-hmm. period. But it, then we go to Judith Butler, who is cited by trans allies and trans activists all the time. And she makes the point that gender sex these are performances they have no reality they have no they have no existence prior to the meaning and the language that we decide to attach to them so that really is a kind of hyper form of relativism isn't it because it's detaching mm-hmm. reality entirely from the world that we live in yeah i mean she's in that tradition um that she's not alone in that of thinking that really we can't think coherently about the world as it is in itself, we only have our different sociocultural constructions of things. I don't agree with that view metaphysically, but what's bizarre about Butler is that you really that view should apply to absolutely everything. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm. it's she she argues it from such a great height. She does bring in Anne Fasto Sterling at one point and talks a bit about people with intersex conditions, but. Most of the time she's arguing from the nature of language and the world generally to the conclusion that sex is not material. You know, that conclusion should ramify out to all sorts of things like Mm. cancer and black holes and everything, basically. But in practice, it doesn't. You know, in Mm. her books after Gender Trouble and Bodies That Matter, she, she carries on talking as if there's such things as race and disability and, but she, has it in for sex, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's her, yeah. you, you know, her, the thing she's known for. So fine, if you want to say that sex is socially constructed because you think everything is socially constructed. Mm-hmm. Well, as I say, again, in the book, you know, there are social constructionists, but they say things like, look, just because we think the world's socially constructed mean, doesn't mean we're not going to get on an airplane. It just means that what we mean by social construction is compatible with these things existing in an ordinary sense. And that's what I think we should do for sex. I mean, I don't think it's socially constructed, but if everything's socially constructed, clearly sex has one of the most compelling claims to existence in the ordinary sense, I think, Mm. because it's what keeps species going. (laughs) Absolutely. And there's a part in your book where you describe very well that sex is arguably the most obvious existing thing, which I think (laughs) will connect with lots of readers. So just taking the sex and gender discussion on a little bit, I want to ask you about... I don't know how to refer to people like you. I say trans-skeptical feminists, but I often get told off for saying that. I know other people call you TERFs. I want to come back Mm. to the question of TERFs later on. You are a philosopher. You you say in the book that you never thought that you would be a feminist philosopher, but that's kind of what you've become. But, you know, the kind of women in the UK in particular who are raising questions about gender identity and the current situation with trans activism and so on. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you ever have a concern that part of your campaign looks like an attempt to get back to biology? Because you describe very well in the book that one of the aims of feminism, and it was a positive aim, was to take us away from the era of biological determinism, Mm -hmm. the sexist idea that women could only do certain things. And along the way, it became a bit confused and the gender thing kind of took over and that was problematic. Is there an element where some campaigners today, well, I guess what I'm saying is, are you trying to 
get the biological question back into the discussion while simultaneously, obviously, defending the idea that mm. men and women should be completely equal? Short answer is no, but I'm not terrified <laughs> of that as a as a conclusion either. So I think I think one of the things that needs to be reassessed in the history of feminism is this kind of fear on on some feminist part that it might turn out that there are biological differences over and above the sort of gamete related ones, psychological differences or behavioural differences across the average, you know, it'll be expressed across a range, <laughs> you know, so mm. it would never be the claim that if you're a woman, you think this way, or if you're a man, you behave this way. That would never be a reasonable statement of an empirical generalization across a massive population. But I'm not frightened of that. I just think it's an empirical question. I mean, like mm. philosophers aren't here to say it cannot be like that. Mm. We've just got to find out. And if it does turn out that across, on average, across 51% of the population, you can make certain generalizations about psychology or behavior, so be it. It doesn't follow from that, that we have to organize society any particular way, because we, although I'm sure it will have some kind of conversation with how we should organize society, because we um, mitigate socially for biological differences all the time, you yeah. know, so all we should do. So um, it's true that I'm a bit skeptical of the idea of equality understood as whatever men have, women should have. And I do think it follows from my view that men and women are different kinds of thing. Yeah. And that probably has political ramifications, but I don't go into any of that in the book. That's like, that'd be my next book. (laughs) Good. We'll look forward to that. Okay. So I I now want to move on to talking about some of the impact of this stuff on, on various different things. The first thing I want to ask you about is, is the impact that this has on women. Mm. Woman is a controversial word, but let's use it anyway, just just for the hell of it. Because this is something that's always concerned, I've always found very concerning, and I'm always very supportive of the women who have raised their voices to and the criticisms of some of the things that are happening. But it strikes me that there is an unquestionable misogynistic element to a lot of this stuff. And that's not to say that transgenderism itself is misogynistic. Most trans people are perfectly normal people who want perfectly normal lives. Mm. But in terms of the campaigning, in terms of the attempt to shift language, in terms of the way in which institutions will now refer to women as cervix havers or menstruators, Mm -hmm. the way in which rape victims are potentially forced to refer to their rapists using female pronouns, all this stuff, which if you were to suggest to someone 15 years ago that this was coming down the line, they would not have believed you. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I want to ask you about in terms of impact is the impact that you think this has on women's sex-based rights. I think it's, it's really potentially devastating and is already causing harm. So I have always assumed, I mean, it just seems to me obvious that women's spaces where women get undressed or sleep in public, relatively public places, should be separated from males. Like, that's just basic. It's not a character Mm -hmm. reference for men. No one's ever taken it that way. It's just, you know, no one's suggesting that every man that wandered into a changing room would do harm. It's just a safeguarding measure. And that's how safeguarding measures work that you protect the many from the few (laughs) by keeping out everyone. And it was well understood as a social norm. And now we've got all these policies which say, I mean, you know, universities at my university and many other places that 
people can self-ID into whichever space they want based on their inner feeling of gender identity. And that's just a recipe for disaster because it's so obviously open to abuse. And it also just destroys the social norm that a woman can say, sorry, I think you're in the wrong place, mm. which was pretty much the only protection they had. It's not like these spaces are, you know, policed in any significant sense. So you just had social kind of disapproval at your, in your arsenal, as it were. And now you don't mm. have that because you've got signs up in some campuses saying, if someone seems like they're in the wrong bathroom, let them get on with it. So uh, I think that's outrageous. And of course, it's going to impact most on more financially precarious people. It's obviously going to impact, and this is the sort of the worst possible example of it in women's prisons. I just cannot mm. understand what the hell people thought they were doing there, putting sex offenders into women's prisons because they say they feel like women. And at this point, I start to sound angry. But obviously, some people people are under a kind of spell, I think, <laughs> and they just think there's something miraculous that's happened, and all of the normal safeguarding processes and our understanding of human nature goes out the window. So this is about male patterns of violence, and male it's just a fact that males are overwhelmingly the perpetrator of sexual violence, and females are overwhelmingly the victims. Yes, I think that's a really useful overview of, of the impact that this can have on women-only spaces. The one that always strikes me was the case of Topshop when a, a non-binary activist mm -hmm. who was a man, I know you're not allowed to say that, but that's the way it goes, agitated for his right to use the girls' changing rooms in Topshop. And I used to take my nieces to Topshop a while ago mm -hmm. and the thought of a man ever going in there, and it wasn't even the question of safety, although that's very important, but it was also the question of girls being able to show each other their clothes and Snapchat each other and have those kinds mm -hmm. of private conversations, just a private space in which you could do things that you wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing if there's a 25-year-old yeah. bloke with you. So the importance of women's spaces, I think people obviously overlook enormously. But the other thing you touch on in your book in relation to the impact on women's rights is, is in work as well. And some of the measures that have been instituted in recent years to ensure a greater level of female equality in the workplace, women only shortlists in politics, for example, or women focused promotion measures in order to balance out gender disparity and so on. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff is completely thrown up in the air when you can self-identify as a woman. Yes. <laughs> so the obvious explanation for what happens to women's careers and what causes what they call the gender pay gap, it's not that most of the time anyway, directly, that the organisations are paying men and women different amounts for the same amount of work. It's that women get out of the career ladder to have children. Mm. And when they come back, they're looking for part-time work. And this then affects their promotion chances or means that they earn less relatively speaking. But none of that is relevant to, that's not based on identity. That's based on at most social presentation or the risk of getting pregnant or being perceived as if you might get pregnant. So contemporary life is full of these really surreal, to me still, surreal kind of interpretations of what's important. So for instance, Athena Swan, which is this, this organization set up, I believe, in universities to try and get some kind of parity for women, now talks about gender identity in terms of data collection. So quite often these days, data collection is, and we saw it in the census recently, or would have mm. done if, if women hadn't protested, 
quite often data collection is based around gender identity now. So mm. when we're trying to get the right stats to work out what's going on and how sex is making a difference to various social outcomes, we can't even do that anymore <laughs> with, yeah. in a robust way because these organizations have changed the definition of what they were looking for. So, yeah, like I say, everyone's just seems to be off on their own little trip, mm. particularly in the sort of middle class, financially insulated professions where yeah. presumably the outcome of all this won't make much difference to them either way anyway. Absolutely. And I think the the data collection point or even the birth certificate point, that's when you can really see the Orwellian strain in some forms of trans activism because it then becomes impossible for society to know the truth about itself, mm -hmm. to know, you know, whether it was a boy or a girl who was born on the 5th of August, 1985, or to know how many women there are, what health services they might need, all those kinds of mm -hmm. questions. So you can really see how it has an extraordinarily disruptive impact on our ability to understand the society we live in. And we also don't know how many trans people there are, which is really strange when you think of all the machinery that's being put into um, what is assumed to be good for trans people. But because we can't seem to disaggregate the question, what is your sex from what is your, yeah. your gender identity, we can't cross-refer. So yeah. that's interesting. I mean, I think institutions don't really have a firm sense of of how many trans people they have, and also disaggregating those from the non-binary people, from the trans men, from the trans women, that's important too. I love the feeling of learning something new. That's what I get every time I watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus. This streaming service is a must-have, and I have an incredible deal for my listeners – Get a free trial, plus get 20% off when you sign up for the annual membership. But you have to go to my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. You can gain access to a whole world of knowledge for less than what most of us spend on coffee each month. I've just enjoyed a fascinating lecture on how the Industrial Revolution changed politics. You'll learn all about the denial of democracy to the industrial cities, the battles over the corn laws and free trade, and the rise of trade unions. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll get thousands of hours of fascinating content across hundreds of topics like ancient Greece or the evolution of technology, or even learn how to play chess – You'll get access to video, audio and guidebooks and new content is added every month. And you can watch or listen anywhere at any time with the Great Courses Plus app. So don't miss out on this great deal. Go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan to get your free trial and my listeners will also get 20% off the annual membership. Once again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. So also in terms of impact, I want to ask you about the impact. You talk about this in the book too, in terms of same-sex attraction. So you talk in the book about the importance of why is sex important? You know, who knew that would be a question? Why is sex important? And one reason is in relation to sexual orientation, what that means, what that entails. Mm -hmm. And one of the heartening things I think over the past few years has been the rise of 
gay rights activists and lesbian rights activists and the LGB alliance who are hated in an incredibly irrational way. <laughs> and these movements and, and activists who are essentially saying, you know, if we erase the idea of sex and replace it entirely with the idea of gender, then that will have a disruptive impact on the idea of same-sex attraction, on lesbian rights in particular. Mm -hmm. So could you just say something about the impact of the the replacement of any discussion of sex with an obsession with gender identity, the impact that has on, on gay rights and lesbian rights? Sure. So under the new paradigm, which is endorsed by mainstream LGBT organisations, both in the UK and the US and Canada, you now define sexual orientation as an attraction to gender identity, mm. like an inner state. I mean, I don't even know what the story is supposed to be about how that sexual attraction gets going reliably <laughs> because you can't see it <laughs> and it might not be expressed as we're always being told. So yeah, that changes the ball game completely. And, and the most obvious example of that is that now trans women who are male, you know, in old mm -hmm. money, and most of whom have retained their natal genitalia, self-describe not only as women, but also as lesbians, meaning mm -hmm actually in practice, meaning very often that they just are heterosexual and they fancy women. Hmm. But, you know, you can dress it up as being attracted to female gender identity, but it turns out it's quite predictable which sex <laughs> they are yeah. attracted to. So now that makes a difference because it's not just in the name. It means that the lesbian community now has a lot of males self-identifying into it. Dating apps have lots of males on them you know, social evenings. Now, it's, nobody's saying that people shouldn't have a choice in that respect. If you want to do an inclusive, a trans-inclusive event, I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. But what is happening is you can't not do a trans-inclusive event. And that has a number of knock-on effects. But one of them, the one that I find most disturbing is that younger, the younger generation of same-sex attracted people, and particularly women, are being pressured in to thinking that if they don't open themselves up, to sexual experiences with trans lesbians who are also lesbians according to this new paradigm then there's something wrong with them or that they're not very nice people now that straight people listening really need to think this through what is being said mm. it's like lesbians same-sex attracted girls are being told they should fancy or at least be open to fancying males with penises that mm -hmm. is what effectively is being said by our major LGBT organizations. <laughs> so that's yeah. a real turnaround because it used to be that our major LGBT organizations used to protect same-sex attracted people from heterosexuals who wanted, who said that they should sleep with yeah. them. Yeah, absolutely. And that is such an important point. I mean, one of the core homophobic arguments of the past, particularly in relation to lesbians, was you just need a good shag. I mean, that's essentially what was said about lesbians mm. for a long time by people who um, were anti-lesbian, anti-gay. And in a very much more politically correct fashion, this, a similar thing is being said by, yeah. as you say, mainstream gay rights institutions today who are essentially saying that same-sex attracted young women have to submit to sexual encounters with someone of the opposite sex. They have to consider it. You know, they never put it yeah. like, you must. Yeah. It's always like, you should be open to that. You know, I'm not saying Stonewall has this on all its literature, but it's a direct consequence of the, what it has on its literature, which is, you know, the, if you look at their page, The Truth About Trans, there is a, a, a frequently asked question, you know, something like, can a trans lesbian sleep with a lesbian? 
Or can a lesbian trans woman sleep with another lesbian? Yes, <laughs> if they're attracted to each other, they can. Fine, but then they're probably not lesbians. So the way that the language is just being kind of changed around this is 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 hiding the plain facts. And it's not enough to say, oh, but it's just a matter of consent, like either you want it or you don't want it. Young people in particular need language to describe their own sexual orientation in yeah. order to defend their own sexual orientation, because society doesn't like it very much. Absolutely. So th the other impact I wanted to explore with you is on young people. And mm -hmm. one of the things I find most concerning about this current trend is the rising numbers of young people who are presenting at gender identity clinics, who are very confused, who are taking courses of action that I would consider to be ill-advised and are often not getting a rounded dispassionate, neutral assessment of their dysphoria or of their feelings or of the predicament mm -hmm. they find themselves in. You mentioned earlier on the phenomenon of breast binding and all these things. And I think it, a lot of people would find it quite shocking that there are fairly significant numbers of teenage girls who, for some reason, feel so encouraged to think of their bodies as problematic mm -hmm. and possibly even repulsive, that they would take these extraordinary measures when they enter puberty, either to breastbind or to take drugs or whatever mm -hmm. else they might be doing. And, and it is a growing phenomenon among young girls who believe that possibly their same-sex attraction might mean that they have a male persuasion or maybe that they are trans, maybe they should shift into the other sex. Mm -hmm. How difficult do you think the current trend is for young people who are going through a period of life which is difficult anyway? Well, I think it's they're just responding to the the culture that we've created, not me, but <laughs> that our progressives betters have created, and I don't blame them at all for accepting that narrative. Why wouldn't they? When there are books about it, and their teachers rehearse the platitudes and so on. So I say in the book that basically I treat the idea that you are not a woman, or you know that your sex can be changed as a fiction. And fictions can be valuable. Mm. Being immersed personally in a fiction for a temporary period of time or even longer can be valuable. Um, it'd be a way of sort of escaping from a reality that you really can't deal with and or creatively reinterpreting the reality you have. And, you know, there are pluses to that, but there are also pitfalls attached. So we just need to be able to talk about it being a fiction collectively and and assess those properly. Now, I'm not a therapist, obviously. But I've talked to lots of therapists in the course of this book and the British Psychological Society. There's a memorandum of understanding that a lot of professional bodies in psychology and therapy have signed that tries to understand talking therapy for teens who have gender identity disorders as, as conversion therapy, like converting them out of their yeah. transness. And that is being pushed together with discussion of conversion therapy for sexual orientation which is ironic, really, because a lot of these kids apparently are same-sex attracted. So that's another example where this myth of gender identity is this fundamental part of the self that should only ever be affirmed has, has crept into the therapeutic language. And I think it's harming children. It's obviously going to harm those that in later life regret what happened mm -hmm. to them. I mean, I, I just don't know what some of these kids are going to think when their prefrontal cortexes grow in properly and they realize yeah. You know, that they had other alternatives. Yeah. Some of them literally believe they are going to change sex and no one's yeah. telling the difference. It's amazing. Absolutely. 
And as you say, if you do try and tell them different, you will be accused of enacting a form of conversion therapy. So that's an incredibly slippery demonization of of an attempt to offer these young people a a, a different route, Mm -hmm. which is why I think the case of Kira Bell was so Mm -hmm. heroic in terms of Mm -hmm. questioning that narrative and questioning the conveyor belt that young people are often put on. Okay, so another impact I want to discuss with you is the impact on freedom of expression and freedom of thought and freedom of conscience, because all of those things, I think, are pretty gravely threatened by the culture that now surrounds trans activism, Mm -hmm. and not just trans activism, in fact, but also the adoption of the trans worldview by powerful, influential institutions, which I think is in some ways more significant in the long run. But I just want to talk to you about the, at the start of the book, you say you're happy to be a heretic, which I was really delighted to read because I'm also happy to be a heretic. (laughs) But there is a climate of extraordinary hostility towards particularly women. In fact, I've had hostility on this issue. I've had people protesting against me at Cambridge and Oxford when I've gone to do talks there because of things I've written about transgenderism. I've had people staging protests, all those kinds of fairly predictable things. But it is always more visceral Mm -hmm. when it's a woman who raises these questions, always unquestionably, Mm -hmm. because I think that's seen as far more confrontational, the fact that a woman is defending the language of womanhood and the idea of womanhood. So people like you are referred to as TERFs, which I think is just a modern phrase for which, and you are demonized, you are called bigots, and as you describe in the book, any questioning of aspects of transgenderism or the extreme trans view is automatically presumed to be a bigoted standpoint. So Mm. you touch on the book, you, you ask the question of why there is such an aggressive response to any women who raise questions. So could you just outline for our listeners why you think it has become so aggressive and so illiberal? People pick on women because they assume they're going to back down. I mean, mm. that's women is this is coming from women as well as men. Women pick on yeah. other women because they assume they're going to back down. Like if you've got a choice between protesting you and protesting me, they'll protest me. And I don't think that's any surprise. Like it's just strategic basically. But in practice, it means that, so I've been working a couple of times with this organization in Women's Place UK. And the last meeting I went to in Brighton, I had to push my way through this crowd that were just screaming at us, chucking water. Someone like tapped me on the back of the head as I went in. They were blocking our way. And then all the way through the meeting, there was just boots on the windows, like banging all the way through so we couldn't hear. I mean, it was proper, aggressive, full-on stuff. And yeah, I don't know. It's a, I think it's a combination of like performative radicalism. It's like, really easy for white kids to <laughs> to perform <laughs> radicalism on this issue make of that what you will and probably misogyny as well yeah. and also a bit of ageism to be honest i mean yeah you know we're mostly middle-aged women who are really yeah. in- involved in this yes i think that's true and you do talk about the generational divide in the book between people who think gender identity is a perfectly normal idea mm-hmm. and generally older feminists who have an issue with it. The ageism stuff, I think, has been so apparent in relation to someone like Jermaine Greer. If you see the comments yeah, that yeah. are made about Jermaine Greer, it's just genuinely abhorrent stuff. Jermaine and Julie Bindle have both been treated absolutely disgustingly on mm-hmm. this issue. I mean, they basically said what I said just now in a kind of frank bawdy comic way 
it wasn't particularly sensitive, but they've been treated like war criminals <laughs> for, yeah, state, yeah. for basically indicating that trans women and women are different categories. That's basically yeah. what their, their point was in a sort of comic way. And if a man had said those things, if you'd said those things, Brendan, I mean, or admittedly it was a few years ago, you'd just be like, oh, business as usual. But as yeah. soon as it's them, it's like, right, we can get them now. And yeah. they've never been allowed to forget it. Absolutely. On the question of the aggressive response, I wanted to ask you if, I mean, the way I view it is that I think there is a, a very large element of misogyny. As you say, that it's often women involved in this, mm-hmm. young feminists, as they would describe themselves, who are kind of smashing on the windows and screaming in your face. But very often it's men, mm-hmm. whether it's actual men or men who, who claim to be women. And you have a situation where very often men are trying to prevent women from speaking about sex and gender and other issues that they think are important. And that strikes me as just so unbelievably regressive Mm -hmm. and so clearly misogynistic. But I wonder if another element of the aggression, you write in the book, when you give your potted history, you you talk about the importance of the, the explosion of identity politics in the 21st century and how that has exacerbated lots of this this issue in particular and lots of these responses to criticism. Mm. But I wonder if the aggression in response to people like you and other so-called TERFs is also might be driven by a recognition of the fragility of the trans identity, because it is such a visceral response. It is so violently minded and sometimes violent in practice too. Do you think there's an element where their desperation to protect their ideology from criticism might be driven by a latent recognition that their identity is not as solid as they might claim? Well, I mean, I think it's going to differ from person to person. I do honestly think that the most heat comes from what they would call allies, not trans people themselves. Honestly, I really don't have the same response from trans people, but I've had vicious (laughs) harassment from straight, cis, well, they might call themselves queer, but you know, people. So what I do think is charitably, (laughs) I suppose I should be trying to be charitable, that (laughs) uh, there's a lot of anticipated, I mean, a lot of this is motivated by fear because society cannot accept sex non-conforming people. And, you know, you fear that if you name the category that somehow the scales will fall from people's eyes and, and then, you know, some terrible violence will ensue. And I think we've got to be really responsible on my side of the fence. I really worry about a backlash, not because of anything I'm doing actually, but because of the extreme demands of trans activists, I worry about a backlash for trans people. I don't think you're going to get a backlash because of my book. I've tried really very hard to be responsible and evidence-based and listen to the trans people that I talk to. But there may be a backlash because trans activists are insisting that we change language on such a vast scale and insisting that we cannot talk about stuff. So in my view, it's the responsibility of academics and people on the left to get in there and try and manage this properly on behalf of trans people who, like I keep saying, a lot of them don't recognize the concept of gender identity is important for them and don't want the things that Stonewall is demanding. You know, they don't want sport to be completely restructured around Mm. identity. That seems mad to most people who are not Mm. immersed in trans politics. I think that's a really important point that there are now a growing number of trans voices who are saying, Mm -hmm. you know, slow this down, because I think they recognize precisely what you're saying, which is that there could be a backlash 
against them who just want to live as good a life as they can and not, are not interested in this extreme view. Mm-hmm. Okay, just two more questions I want to ask you. So just coming back briefly to the whole sex gender discussion, one thing that I've always thought, and I'm interested to get your opinion on this, is there's something very regressive in the way that trans activists understand womanhood in particular. There may be an element of that in relation to how they understand masculinity too. But in relation to womanhood, this idea that you will often hear trans activists or trans allies talking about the fact that if a young boy likes pink, plays with dolls, exhibits feminine qualities, or or a teenage boy who might be exploring his sexuality, there is this notion that therefore that's femaleness and they need to be dragged into the correct gender So it seems to be a step backwards, in my view, to a situation where femaleness or womanhood or whatever we want to refer to it as was understood in this very feminine way. So the thing that some of the feminists of the 70s, 80s and 90s thought that they were dragging us away from seems to have made a reappearance under the guise of trans activism. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as you did there. I wouldn't say that there's this sort of equation, if you're a boy into dolls, you must be a girl, although I think in some families that might be happening, but I don't think that's the sort of official line. But what the official Mm. line is, is when you ask some trans people, what was it that made you realize you were a woman, if you ask if that's the applicable claim, then they'll say, oh, it was that I liked glitter and makeup and played with my sister's toys or something like that. And that's the, that's the question the feminist asks. What else would you say there? Yeah. <laughs> what you yeah. could do is refer to a social stereotype that's prevalent in mm. your culture, because otherwise, yeah. what is the feeling of being a woman or a man? It's just liking this, liking that, not liking that. So the net effect is the same because you're reinforcing these stereotypes. Now, I've used some examples in the book, but this becomes sort of exacerbated in, in Tram's memoir. I've found one example where a trans woman was talking about the person that they were having sex with, who was also, I think, transitioning. But basically they were saying, and I think it was a female they were having sex with, when this female was on the bottom, it was a she. And when it was on, when he was on top, he was a he. So it was, it was sort of basically identifying mm-hmm. sexual dominance with the male position and um, sexual submission with the female. And that's exactly what radical feminists were yeah. trying to smash. Absolutely. Okay. My final question is at the time we're recording this, that the Maya for starter case is we've heard the representations and mm-hmm. there will be a judgment at some point. I think she's doing something incredibly important and incredibly brave and getting a lot of flack, of course, for doing so. Yes. And she essentially says that she's fighting for the right to say that a man cannot become a woman, which it reminds me of 1984, a vastly <laughs> over-referenced book, but there is an important storyline in 1984, which is the right to say that two plus two equals four mm-hmm. rather than two plus two equals five. So how important do you think that the Maya Forstata case is and how important do you think it is just for the right of women to say sex yeah. is real and it's immutable? It's incredibly important. I'm actually nervous as hell about which way it's going to mm-hmm. go. But, you know, if her appeal fails then it, it will be okay for employers to fire people for reading up. It's my book. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with Myra on a lot of things. So if you look at the, the case made by the respondent, that is the employer, the original employer of Maya that yesterday in court, it was entirely based around trying to set up a taboo about talking about sex. It was just trying to 
shoved together naming sex with harassment. And that is, in a nutshell, the sort of emotionally blackmailing strategy of modern trans activism. You cannot talk about that because you are harassing, you know, and, and that's ridiculously simplistic when talking about sex enters into so many domains in modern life or has always entered into so many domains in any kind of life because sex is crucial <laughs> to how societies are built and structured. So it's just mad. <laughs> let's, let's just <laughs> pray that the right result happens. Kathleen Stock, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.